This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 516. Thanks for joining me this week. As you know, every week on this show, we cover topics related to building and growing ambitious startups. But they're ambitious, yet sustainable. They're startups that live within our life and help us, help our employees and our customers and other people who are involved. These are obviously not nonprofits, but they're not the typical Silicon Valley startups where people are sacrificing their freedom, their purpose, their relationships in order to to build these companies and where fundraising can be a goal in itself. We want to build real businesses with real customers who pay us real money, and we want to do it in a meticulous and disciplined way, in in a repeatable fashion to where we could build many, many businesses in the same fashion. We don't want to rely so much on luck like a lot of the big venture funded companies do. This week, I'm talking with a returning guest, Matt Wensing, about when to rewrite your SaaS code base. It's something that he's just spent the last three or four months doing. But before we dive into that, I wanted to cover two talking points. The first is, you might be noticing that my co-host emeritus, Mike Tabor, has not been on the show in quite some time. I believe it's been about three months. Mike and I have been chatting via email and text, and we even did a phone call today. And he has stuff that's going on that he really isn't able to talk about in public. And he has things going on that are that are interesting and are very likely to push his business forward in interesting ways. But when you can't talk about it in public, it doesn't make for an interesting podcast. You know, he's still working on Blue Tick. And, uh, you know, I do want to get an update from him on that and everything else that's going on. But we both agreed that for now, he should hang tight. And he's going to let me know when the things that that he is working on can essentially be discussed on the show. And then I'll have Mike back on the show, like we've been doing for, for the past year or so. The other thing I wanted to mention is that a couple weeks ago with Tiny Seed, we launched our investment thesis moving forward. It's for fun to and beyond. But the idea is that we believe investing broadly into the earliest stages of B2B SaaS companies. And specifically, it's the B2B SaaS companies who are not necessarily reliant on traditional venture capital, right? It's the startups for the rest of us, the microconf type companies. But we believe this can provide amazing returns for investors and thus allows us to raise more money and help more companies. And there's this huge gap in the funding market. And that's why we launched Tiny Seed back in 2018. And it's why we're continuing to double down in this space as I have been for you know 15 years with the blog and more than a decade with the podcast and nine years, almost going on 10 here with MicroConf, but it's to help more founders get there faster. And some founders get tremendous value out of a free podcast. Some get value out of a, a $20 book or a $10 ebook, and some get value out of attending in-person events and, and meeting people and hearing tactics and tips and building relationships. And, and others do want to take that, that other step of, hey, here's some funding and here's a batch approach and you know here's a network and mentorship and all that. And so there are many different paths for folks to get there. And, and you know, I think about it as being bootstrapped, almost bootstrapped, mostly bootstrapped, as I've heard uh, Craig Hewitt throw out on his podcast a few times. But the idea is that there's this huge gap between raising millions or tens of millions in funding and going after that unicorn exit. And the companies that we talk about on this podcast and that are part of the the microconf community of building these ambitious yet sane startups. And so if you are an investor, if you're accredited or you fit the definition of a U.S. accredited investor, you do not have to live in the U.S., I'd encourage you to check out tinyc.com slash thesis because we have a bunch of, of data that we have crunched and are spent weeks and weeks writing this massive 
report. It's an me- investment memo that has become our investment thesis. And we you know, have essentially been proving that out with our first two batches. And we're in the process of raising fund two so that we can continue to help and support and mentor and guide and fund hundreds and hundreds more independent SaaS companies. So again, that's tinyc.com slash thesis. If you decide to invest, you'll be joining folks like Dharmesh Shah, co-founder of HubSpot, Rand Fishkin, founder of SparkToro, Steli Efti, co-founder of Close.com, and Patrick McKenzie, who many of you know as Patio11 on the internet. As I mentioned earlier, today I'm talking with Matt Wensing. He's the founder of Summit. He's been on the show a couple times. I believe this is his third appearance. He is the co-host of the Out of Beta podcast. And Matt and I talk about a bunch of stuff about what he's been up to in the past six, seven months since he was last on the show. One of the topics we do dig into is why he decided to rewrite his entire code base, whether that was worth it, things he might do differently in the future, how he made that decision. Uh, We also cover how he's getting growth, how he has been doing customer development, just all kinds of stuff. So it's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Matt Wensing, thank you so much for joining me on the show again. Mr. Walling, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. It's good to have you back. As some folks may remember, you were on the podcast back in March, episode 489, 15 years to a SaaS exit plus why forecasting is crucial. And in that episode, we talked through building and growing Risk Pulse and then selling it back in 2019 for a very nice exit. And then we talked towards the end of that episode about Summit, which is the SaaS app, the startup that you've been working on now for what, a year and a half? Yeah, yeah. That's about right. About a year and a half, and you're, you're part of Tiny Seed Batch 1, and Summit, well, your H1 is tell your forecasting spreadsheet you're never getting back together. Design your business with Summit instead. And so you're about forecasting, right? We talked last episode about how if you go into Bear Metrics or Chart Merkle or ProfitWell, it is everything up until today. It's, it's your backwards-looking metrics, and those are obviously very important to be looking at. And Summit kind of takes it from there and then you can extrapolate ahead using, we talked about Monte Carlo very lightly, but it's just simulations and, and things of like, hey, this is where you're headed based on based on where, where you've come from. Is that a pretty good assessment so far? That is excellent. Awesome. So folks may recognize your voice, co-host of the Out of Beta podcast with our mutual friend, Peter Sum. And I guess you're at Matt Wensing on Twitter. That's right. That's, you can find me there. I, I tweet way too much but you can, I guess, help me do that even more. <laughs> yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah. No, go follow Matt to encourage him to spend more time on Twitter That's unless right. I'm working on his company. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so yeah, I want to, there's several interesting things I want to dig into today. I, I think we're going to talk at some point about your homepage of Summit. It's at usesummit.com and folks can check it out. It is very sparse. It's a headline and a tagline and then buttons and that's it. So it's not the typical SaaS homepage. But before we dive into that, I want to kind of take maybe go, go from where we left off back in March in the sense that you were in early access and folks were using, you had you had a few customers paying you something, but you did not have the traction that, that you wanted, but you were moving in that direction. You had people coming in, signing up for trials, connecting their metrics, and then it didn't seem like things were working in the sense that you weren't growing month over month the, you know, the way that you might expect. And people were trying it out and again, wiring up metrics, but they weren't sticking around and, and nobody was, nobody's a strong word, but most people weren't paying. The majority of people were not getting, you know, the value out of it. So talk to me about where you were, because I, I think a lot of folks listening to this episode 
have been in that position or are in that position now where they've built something and they know there's something there, right? It's not just a complete failure and people are intrigued by it and they try it out, but they, they don't stick around. They don't pay. And I, I just want to hear kind of mentally where you were and what that looked like from your perspective as a founder. Yeah, we can definitely relive that. <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's the pain. It, it's funny. It didn't feel like pain when I was there because, you know, some things were good, you know, and, and I was getting feedback from people that really, frankly, loved the app, but there just weren't enough of them. And just to kind of jump ahead to what I learned, and then we can talk about sort of how how I missed it and, and then how I finally realized it maybe is that I think I got the target persona wrong. And I didn't know that I got it wrong because that actually that target persona was actually just sort of the later stage. So to put concrete terms, you know, I launched Summit as an app called SimSass, and I was thinking, let me help the very, very earliest stage founder figure out how to do a forecast without the use of something like Google Sheets. And I'm going to bring a load of technology to bear on it and make it just a killer app where you can just enter, enter 20 numbers and hit a big button, literally, and get an answer. And it did that. It delivered on that promise. And for the users, the earliest stage founders, that had nothing, nothing at all, you know, no spreadsheet, just thoughts and ideas. It worked. The problem was something happens as time goes by. Those founders grow, <laughs> grow up, their businesses mature, and their needs evolve. So that's one part. And the other part is they get used to the app as it is. And then just like with every other app, they want more, right? So the app as it was yesterday, even for those happy users, once they are happy, that's that's the great, what do they call it? Uh, Jeff Bezos calls it like that wonderful human discontent or something. The piece, basically, people are always coming back for what's the new thing? How can I do more stuff with this? Can it also do that? And so I was building up kind of two things. One was this eroding usage that wasn't going away. So my retention, even my free retention, because it's a freemium product, free retention wasn't good. You know, I didn't like the direction it was going. People would have these experiences, but then they weren't engaging frequently enough to turn them into a paying customer. But then the other part was even the people that loved it had a wish list of things that, you know, would really get them excited and really push them over the line and maybe even turn them into a paying customer. And I'm a one-man team. Uh, I shouldn't say that actually anymore. I'm a one-man team currently with a handful of contractors. And that just put me at a crossroads of, I've got this code base that I've been working on for a year. It's kind of a core and then there's a front end and a back end. Let's just call it that. The back end is really unique, really hard to build, sort of the kind of thing you hope you never have to do again. <laughs> and then the front end was like bootstrap and you know pretty basic components and tools. And I, I tried to pick good colors, but it wasn't like amazing. It was good enough. And I just hit this crossroads though of, like to your question, where have I gone wrong in terms of why can't I, why can't I keep these people around and why can't I fully satisfy you know, their wish list. Maybe not to the 100% because I think that's almost impossible. But why is it increasingly hard to build the next thing that somebody asks me for? And what does that mean for my business, right? Um, those were the kind of the questions I was facing in February and March. So it was pretty obvious to you just that people were not engaging and not paying. It's never obvious what you do then. 
you know, it's never obvious what do you build. So how did you get to that point? And I mean, I guess the end of the story really is that you have a lot more traction now and growth has started kicking up and people are getting value out of it. You know, here we are in, in August. So we're, whatever that is, six months later. So we know that that you made a good decision in here. So, you know, you, you changed the product enough that, that you do have traction now. So how did you figure out what to build? Was it conversations with customers or something else? Yeah, I was thinking about this. In that, you know, I think we're always looking as founders for validation. <laughs> I know I am. I think most of us are. And so when people say things that are complimentary, they just tend to really, I wanted to say weigh on us, but that sounds bad, but they really put wind in our sails, you know, pick your metaphor. Like it feels great and you remember those things. And I think there's a bit of a bias towards evidence that you're on the right track. But then, as I said, there was like this mounting evidence that I wasn't on the right track, like something was wrong. And so I really said, I've got to start piecing together the consistent story that I'm hearing from the users that I really want to have, whether it's people that are on the verge, but the app just isn't good enough, or maybe there are people who love the app and then fell out of love with it because it wasn't good enough. And kind of a, a deep look at, you know, maybe a scary look at, at that evidence and that feedback and saying, what product do these people actually need? And you know, and actually a little bit of context is helpful. And this sounds a little counter counterintuitive. I was able to raise another small round of funding right around the same time frame, so February. And it was based on the traction that I had with the first version of the product. And again, I think what investors were seeing, what I was seeing was, look, there is clearly a demand for this. People are paying, you are getting users. They're coming in. Something's not quite right but at least the kindling is there. <laughs> you know, like I, I think you and Einer, when you invested through Tiny Seed, were really betting on me as a person and a pr proof of concept. I think these people were saying, proof of concept has proven out, hasn't quite figured out the customer yet, right, the monetization yet, but we're willing to bet that Matt's onto something. And so I, I had the immense privilege of, and I think it's important to say that that way, like of, of in March, frankly, right as the world was shutting down, to say, wow, I've got 12 plus months of runway suddenly where I don't have to worry about revenue. I've got a bunch of data from customers. Now is not the time to do incremental stuff, right? Or, or better said, now is an opportunity to do something big. Like if I'm going to do it, doing something big now, making big changes now, and then watching them, you know, seeing how that goes over the next 12 months is better than, well, you make incremental changes for the next nine months, kind of burn through a bunch of this new runway and then find out that, you know, I needed to make big changes. So I, I chose to flip it around and say, let me really go back to basics and build against the feedback that I'm getting from this user, this user, and these users, because those are the folks that I think, I mean, that's the market I want. Like those are the people I want to satisfy. And so it's just being very deliberate about who I wanted to please and then being honest that it wasn't good enough for them. And then really the, the third factor, which is I think the most important in deciding to do the rewrite was I've got the time. And I, I potentially have the focus because suddenly the whole world shut down. And if I can figure out how to work at home with four kids <laughs> and a family all stuffed into this house together, then, then maybe I won't have to, you know, I can basically chain myself to my desk for the next 60 days, right? And do something, do something big, right? Take a big risk. So it sounds like you were listening to customers and, and kind of, would you say it's, it was a jobs to be done thing like that in your head, the job of Summit is to do X and that it wasn't, that you found that it wasn't, that you had built it to do the wrong job? Does that, that metaphor work? Yeah, I actually, I, I like it. I can sort of use that as a start. So I thought my hypothesis was the job of Summit was to create a forecast for people. It's like, you don't have a forecast. 
you're going to hit that button after putting in a few numbers and you're going to get a forecast. You know, in terms of a vending machine approach where like you punch the Coke button and out comes a Coke, like it worked. The problem was it, it would come out and people were like, oh, well, I really like diet or I like cherry or I want mine with a splash of orange, you know, and, and really that I, I took a step back and I said, what are these people actually saying? Because you can go a little crazy as a founder when you get feedback of like, okay, so I need to build a, a citrus flavor dispenser onto the feature onto this, right? And then, and then these people are going to be happy. But what I found was the things they wanted had nothing in common. What they had in common was they all wanted something else. And if you think about that, the North Star became flexibility. Like, oh, oh my. <laughs> like, I have built a very inflexible extend the vending machine. You come here, if you want A4, A5, you're good. I can't do anything else for you, right? Like, these are your only two choices. And what I realized, the reason that I had to go so deep in terms of rewriting the product was I realized that I was competing against Microsoft Excel, and many of us are. <laughs> and the difficult thing about competing against a spreadsheet and probably other products like that is that a spreadsheet is just endlessly flexible, right? There's nothing you can't do <laughs> in a spreadsheet. And they were coming to me with that same mentality of, I'm not used to being constrained like this. You know, I need to be able to copy this thing and, and add this thing and do this thing. And that really was that need for flexibility. The job to be done was provide them with a flexible sort of canvas, if you will, or a flexible blank space. <laughs> and that was what I had to do for people. And once I realized that, I was like, okay, current version of Summit is not that. I need to like, I started by ripping the front off the vending machine and just being, saying, you know, grab whatever you need. Like it's all open season. And then I just kept going. It's like a house remodeling project. It's like, sometimes you don't know when to stop. <laughs> and, and, and you just keep going and going and going. And I, I remember I got to the point where I had rewritten the front end. And I kind of live tweeted this. I worked in public to do this piece. I rewrote the front end, but the back end wasn't different. And I remember pausing and asking myself like, okay, the front end is a lot more flexible. You can click a lot more things and rearrange things. It's a dashboard tool that's a lot more modern. Is that really the flexibility? Is that all that they needed? And kind of had this moment where, you know, you're standing, it's, you're standing at that river and you just, I just went for it. And I said, no, actually, I think, I think they need the back end like calculations to also be much more flexible. And so I, I basically opened that up as well now. So with the current version of Summit, not only is the front end more, let's say, flexible, right, adjustable, kind of a, a workspace, let's say, the back end also is, is just kind of endlessly customizable. And that was it. Like, that was the breakthrough that I needed. Not to say it wasn't scary. <laughs> You know, well, that was the thing is, you know, there's, I'll say there's a, a rule of thumb or perhaps it's a yellow or red flag when a, when a developer says we need to rewrite the whole code base. That's, it's always like, well, of course we always want to rewrite the whole code base because we, either someone else wrote it and it's not as good as, as the code that I'm going to write, or I wrote it a year or two ago. I was kind of learning this stuff. It's pretty crappy. I mean, I think I've, I feel like that about most, pro most projects that I code, I want to rewrite them. It's like, oh, there's all these hacks and stuff. And so, you know, even going back to probably 15, 20 years, there was an essay by uh, Joel Spolsky on uh, the Joel on Software blog, you know, that it's like never rewrite your code base and, and this and that. And it's not never, but it is, I always push back when, I mean, I, I'm 35 angel investment, you know, angel and tiny seed investments in, and I've had at least, I'll say four, four or five of, of the startups that I kind of advise or interact with say, I want to rewrite, we need to rewrite our code base. And every time I really push on it, like, 
how do you know? Like, why? Oh, you got a new CTO? Yeah, not a surprise. He wants to write the code base. Oh, oh, he wants to change. He wants to change uh, platforms or not platforms, but frameworks too. Keep the same language. Yeah, of course he does because that's his favorite. Fr- you know, and it's it's this and that. And some, look, sometimes it is the right decision, though, right? But it just really needs to be thought through carefully. I think. And you and I may have had that conversation. I don't. I don't even recall to be honest. But did you put a ton of time into thinking? Do I really want to do this, or did you kind of say, "Man, this"? Because if I recall, it was what sixty days, seventy days of effort. Did you just say? you know what, I have the time and I'm, I'm just not going to think that much about it. I'm just going to crank through and, and do this. Yeah, I, I've got good friends and mentors and definitely heard that feedback. I think you might have sent me like an email saying, just in general, that's not a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> do it. Yeah. But I trust you uh, sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. And so I, there was definitely that voice in my, you know, on my shoulder. I think what was hard for me to communicate because I'm a, you know, 1.75 person crew, <laughs> let's just say one man crew, and certainly at the time is we all wear many hats as founders, especially in the early days, you wear all the hats. And the hat I was wearing when I said I wanted to do the rewrite, I've got a geek in me, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't the inner geek saying, oh man, you know, I want this to be faster, better, new framework, whatever. It wasn't the shiny object syndrome (laughs) developer in me. It really was the business strategist, the founder that said, I want a product I can be proud of that, you know, when I do a demo, I'm looking forward to those demos. I know people are going to be happy instead of knowing that they're going to say, oh, well, I need these six things. Like I need to satisfy this need in the market that's coming, being expressed by these people. So it was really a lot more of a, it sounds weird, but like it was a sales and marketing driven decision to say, I'm not doing this for performance sake to eke out another 10%. I'm not even doing this for framework sake. I'm doing this so that when I do a demo with somebody, it blows them away and they buy the thing, <laughs> right? And I've lived in that situation before doing sales of things where there's, there's just all these shortcomings and you don't always have to go back and rewrite the thing. Sometimes you just don't need to tell the customer, hey, you know, sorry, it's just not a good fit for you right now. We'll let you know. It's on the roadmap. We'll let you know when we get to it. But I made the executive decision, as you have the luxury of doing in the early days, to say, no, I'm the CEO and founder and there's enough evidence here coming from my inner salesperson to say, this is just not the right product and we need to rewrite it. And so then it was kind of like my, my inner CEO going, hey, developer, Matt, guess what you're going to do? <laughs> You've got a job to do. You better roll up your sleeves and learn Vue.js and you know, Hashura and a whole bunch of new tech because you're going to want to do all these things. And of course, I let myself have fun. Don't get me wrong. It was a blast. But like, I really felt like I was hiring my developer self to do a job. Not my developer was like, ooh, 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 I have an idea. <laughs> you know, like, we should do this. And I think that just comes through experience, not saying perfect, but like you got to be really honest with yourself, right? About where your, where your motivation's coming from to do something like that. Yeah. I think that's a really good point for folks to think about is if you're, you're a single founder or a two founder team and you are thinking about rewriting, put on your sales and marketing hat, you know, put on your CEO hat and not your CTO or not your developer hat. Not that there's never a reason, you know, I mean, you can have code that is so bad that you can't add features and it takes you a month to do a day's worth of work or whatever. Of course that happens, but it's, it's a lot less frequent than I think developers tend to make it out to be. And knowing that it came from that sales and marketing perspective and that it truly was like, it almost needed to be a different product, right? I mean, Summit 2.0 is really, really different than Summit 1.0. Yeah, completely. You can actually build Summit 1.0 using Summit 2.0. I think if that doesn't bend people's minds, like Summit 1.0 was just one sort of template now in the new world. And one other thing is that the CTO did speak up a little bit in that time. And the one thing I told Peter this on our podcast was, I want to build this in a way where if it is successful, 
I can hire developers to help me get it to the next level and the next level because the first version, it was one of those things where I got to build this thing by hook or crook and it doesn't matter what the code looks like, like just get the data on the screen and try to sell some subscriptions and test the interest. And I think with this one, I said, I have a pretty good feeling this is going to be, that this is going to be well received. Let me take a little bit longer, maybe two, three, four, five weeks longer, which is again, like kind of doubling the time frame. but I've got the time. And let me make sure that what I come out with is something where I can at least turn to a skilled dev and say, hey, the market likes this. Can you take over these parts now? Because this is the foundation, right? This is not throwaway, basically. And, and that was sort of maybe the concise way to say it. Is my inner CTO was like, don't have it be throwaway, right? If we're going to do this, at least do it in a way where we don't have to scrap it again. Because the last thing we want to do is like, we don't want to do this again. So I did, I did follow that. And I think that's worked out pretty well as, as well. Fortunately, I've had other developers contribute since then, and it's it's moving faster now because of that. So, yeah, that's really nice. And how long did the rewrite take you? I think seventy days of coding. Okay, essentially with a commit and push every day. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, it was very very consistent. Um, and and actually, that was something that's fun. Is you can look at my GitHub, or I can at least look at my GitHub uh, repos and say you can see where my consistent deployments or pushes just sort of died off, and I became very sporadic in terms of my product progress with the first version because I was hitting these walls where like to do the next feature just required a Herculean, like a bigger effort and a bigger effort and bigger effort. So I was like, okay, you know, time to brew the coffee and crank out this feature and it's going to be super hard, right, to do. And I would get these bursts of, of productivity. With the new one, you know, it's, it's actually kind of nice to see quantitative self. You know, you can see, hey, look at that, you know, every day, something new a little bit better, a little bit better. And that also helped me know that I was on the right track. It wasn't a halfway across, but still nothing delivered <laughs> kind of project. Yep. You know, so I'm, I'm looking at your revenue graph. Obviously, I mentioned earlier, you're tiny seed batch one company, so have access to, to that kind of stuff. And there is a really noticeable uptick in, in your MRR. And of course, I'm trying to scroll to it now. But yeah, it looks like between basically from June into July, your revenue ticked up, and you're, you're still early stage, like so folks know. But but it was a uh, I don't know, there was like a doubling or something of, of MRR, and then it went up another, you know, whatever. And is that because of V two? Like, is it, this rewrite instantly resonated with people that noticeably? Yeah. So I think the short answer is yes, but I'll qualify that by saying I took it then to the customers that I was essentially targeting with this rewrite. Right. I took it to them basically as soon as it was ready. And I said, aha, here's the flexibility you've been asking for. Here's the tool. I know it's not done yet, right? It's not 100%. So I want your list. But if you agree this is on the right track, I'd love your support, <laughs> right? I'd love you to buy into it because I think this is what you've been looking for, right? And I, I, was, I was successful in those sales, which felt great. Obviously, that was huge validation. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't really the numbers so much as saying, wow, out of these three or four companies or, or founders that are in my sweet spot, like the ones I really want to please, they bought, right? And that was, that was huge, you know? So I don't know that the numbers, you know, who knows with the old version, I'm pretty sure I would have sold some subscriptions as well. But again, back to the personas, it wouldn't have been to these people, right? It would have been to those other people. And that was not what I ultimately wanted to do. Right, right. And now, I logged into a brand new Summit account. And I mean, the first first thing that pops up, it says, welcome to Summit, the software to replace your financial spreadsheet. And then you have three different pre-built models. You have self-service SaaS, 
early stage SaaS, sales driven SaaS, and then you have upload your own model. And I'm guessing that in Summit V1, one of these models was kind of the default and you were limited with assumptions in there versus this is like a meta, is this like a meta level where it's just, like you said, it's much more of an Excel, I can build whatever I want. Yeah, it it really is. It's more of like maybe a Lego bucket at this point where you can build a model, build your house. Here's all the pieces. Here's the building blocks. And, you know, the first version was more like, here's a Lego kit. It only builds this kind of house. I hope that you live in a ranch home, you know, and you can adjust a few things about it. You know, how big is your garage and how big is this and how big is your, you know, you can make some changes, but it wasn't the kind of thing of like, here's a bucket of parts. And that bucket of parts approach is where what the screen you're looking at right now is essentially saying, you know, here's five kits, right? And you can pick one or three kits and you can pick one. And that's nice too, because you gave me some really good feedback. That wasn't always there. That wasn't actually there at the very beginning of the relaunch. But what you said, and I think it rang true is, ah, man, a blank slate is just really tough. And this is, this is kind of interesting to go through. I pushed back on that at first. I remember getting your email and thinking, ah, I don't know if he gets it yet because it was like, there's all this flexibility now. I don't want to, I don't want to preload stuff. You know, that kind of, that kind of takes it away. But then I, I think where I ended up finding, and I think a lot of people face this blank slate problem, right? With a SaaS app is what do I fill it with? And I was worried that if I automatically put in a bunch of building blocks, you would come to that same conclusion of like, oh, look at that. Like, this isn't for me because this is assuming that I've got a sales team or this is assuming that I'm, you know, self-service or whatever. And so it's really silly, but I just remembered back to like Microsoft Excel, for example, or Microsoft Word. And what happens when you load up those applications, you get hit with this screen and it says, are you trying to do a invoice? Are you trying to do a a short story or an essay, right? And it has all these templates. I just kind of had this mental breakthrough of like, oh yeah, duh, I can just... You can just show them a list of sort of options and they can pick one. And that then gives you the best of both worlds. It's like, if you want a blank slate, man, you know, you can have it. But if you're an early stage founder and you see early stage SaaS in there, you can just click it. Then, you know, hopefully that gets you started faster. Well, yeah, and the beauty of that is not even that you have to use it as is, but when you click it, it pre-populates a bunch of stuff and then I can go tweak it. And that's that's what we learned when we were building Drip was, you know, you have this workflow builder, right, which is this visual designer and you can do if-then-else statements and it's, you know, it's damn near Turing complete language, you know, in this visual builder for email. And people were, the experts, you know, the power users, the Brennan Duns were just like, loved it. And everyone below that level who even like mid-level marketers were like, well, I don't know what to do first. Well, what should I do? And it wasn't until we got the blueprints built that people, and you could just one click import, you know, a blueprint that we really started getting the mid-level and the lower end marketers. So I think that's probably where my feedback, you know, came from is having built a similar engine that I knew, like Derek and I knew the workflow builder. It is incredibly powerful. It was so cool when we launched it. And then, you know, quickly all the questions of like, oh, well, what should I do? And it was like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess we got to show you some guidance, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's my job now is to, you know, there is a group of, and so this is kind of retrospective, there's a group of users of the first product that I essentially alienated, right? They came to the new one and basically said, what what have you done? You know, like you, you, you took away the one I liked and you replaced it with this power tool that she's, I don't know what to do. And that's pretty painful to hear because it's nothing more satisfying as a product person than to hear that somebody loved your, your thing you made, right? But I wasn't going to keep that around. So what, I, what I'm trying to do now is, you know, through looms and education and those templates and blueprints and just building up a community, I really do want to sort of work backwards now and say, 
you can still use this, right? But it, there's going to be some learning, right? This is more of a, this is now more like a drip or that kind of power tool. You got to decide that you want to be good at this and, and learn a new skill to an extent, but it's still better than Excel. You're going to like it more than Excel, <laughs> but you know, there is, there is a learning curve. And so, you know, but that's, that's fine. That appeals to me. I, I frankly, I really enjoy the subject so much that I enjoy teaching people how to use it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And we talked last time about like the value of forecasting in SaaS in terms of one use cases, of course, fundraising to see when your money's going to run out. But if you're a bootstrapper, which you most likely are listening to this show, hiring is a big one, ad budgets, like, hey, ads are starting to work. Can I throw five grand, 10 grand a month at it? Or will I run out of cash just because my LTV pans out? If I if it takes me six months to get paid back, I need X amount of cash. And yeah, you could model that in Excel, but this is going to take everything into account. So there's ad spend, there's any of those, there's any of those big decisions around spending money in a way that is complicated, right? And can put you in a cash crunch. Yeah. What's nice about a model approach instead of a spreadsheet is you sit a founder in front of a spreadsheet and you say, put your business in here. And there's kind of an immediate thought of, okay, I need a, I need a revenue row, I guess. And I also need a expenses row. And then I need this and I need that. And they start to basically build around or they start to fill out that classic spreadsheet template view of the month over month, like what you see in QuickBooks, right? What's interesting about this, and I'm still, I'm still fleshing this out, but I'm really just asking you to tell me about your business, right? Tell me what your revenue plans are. Tell me what your acquisition channels are. Tell me what your team looks like, right? Founders are really good at that, right? You can, you know, just ask a founder, like, how do you acquire your customers? Oh, we have Google ad spend. Cool. Let me capture that real quick. Done. Right. And so the hope is that it's really a more natural way to capture a business is, is this model where to sketch your home on a piece of paper on a napkin is easier than necessarily going through and saying, you know, what are all the dimensions and, you know, all these different things, which people can just kind of seize up. So that that's the test right now is to see how many folks can come to this and essentially describe their businesses and get out something that is, yeah, like you said, really useful in making decisions. As we move towards wrapping up, we got to talk about this homepage because it is one of the most compact, sparse, you know, I think there's like a total of 15, 16 words on it, not including your copyright at the bottom. And it literally is, it's your, it's your logo. It's a picture of a hummingbird, which is pretty cool. And then it's tell your forecasting spreadsheet, you're never getting back together, design your business with Summit instead. There's a button to create a free account. There's a button to sign in. I have seen creative SaaS homepages, obviously the standard one, you can have pricing on it, or maybe that's another link. There's a top nav, which you don't have. You have no footer. I once did a long form sales page, the drip homepage was a long form sales page for quite some time. But I'm not sure that I've seen one like this. I'm curious if you had inspiration or if you just kind of did it on on a whim. And then the real question is, is it working or or do you know yet? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely done because I, I needed a homepage. I was launching the new thing. It was a complete rewrite, including the marketing site. And you know, I just needed to get something out there that had those buttons. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like what's the minimum minimum? It's probably an H1 and H2 and, and the login and, and sign up buttons. Um, so that's what it is. I have not bothered or prioritized, better way to say, I have not prioritized adding to that for a couple reasons. One is I'm still figuring out what Summit is, not to be totally you know, metaphysical, but like, what is this thing, right? And, and I have a little bit of a concern that if I flesh that out with a lot of words, first of all, that's changing. I'm still figuring it out. Second of all, I got to update and maintain that stuff. So there's a, there's a bit of a liability that goes along with adding more words to that homepage. The second part of it, which I will defend for different reasons, and I 
maybe I'm just defending past actions, you know, because I have convenient data, but it's, it's working well enough. So I'm getting through that homepage. I'm still getting anywhere, depends on the day, but I'm getting anywhere from on a very, very slow day. Maybe it's a Sunday holiday or something like that. Two to three signups on a busy day, 10, 12, 15, 20 signups through that page. And that tells me something. It tells me that those are high intent people, right? They just want to get in and check it out. And I think for now, honestly, I don't feel ready to convince more people, people that are on the fence where they're like, I don't know if I need to tell my forecasting spreadsheet goodbye. I'm pretty happy with it. Or I don't have a forecasting spreadsheet or I don't have any context, right? Those people, I'll lure them in, (laughs) you know, I'll bring them in, tractor beam them in eventually. But for now, I kind of like knowing that the people that get into the product are there because they're motivated and they, you know, what they did see resonated with them or they heard about it some other way. And that's good enough for now because the feedback I get from those five or six or 10 signups per day is good signal. For what it's worth, I actually think that's about to end. Like I think the new things, I'm not hearing a lot of new things these days from these signups. And so I think it's really natural then to go back to that homepage and say, well, geez, Matt, (laughs) you know, you could probably widen your funnel here if you just helped a few more people realize that, oh, that's what this does. So it's, I see it as an opportunity. I just, I, I'm not really, haven't prioritized widening the top of the funnel yet, but I will. I, I definitely will. And I'm actually investing a pretty good amount of time in business development and partnerships for Q3 and Q4 to get a lot more people to that homepage. So I fully intend to give them a little bit more <laughs> insight into what it is. No, that, that makes sense. And I think there's a certain benefit to, to simplicity, especially in the short term. That's kind of cool to hear that's your thought process and that is what you're what you're experiencing. I certainly can attest to, I had a tool, so I ran a SaaS app before Drip called Hittail and it's, it's a long tail SEO keyword tool that plugged into your Google, I'm trying to think it was like Webmaster Tools or something and it pulled out, key, maybe it was Search Console, they kept changing the name of it, but it would like pull out keywords that you should rank high for based on your content and based on how people are finding you, but you weren't ranking high enough. Like you were on the second page of Google and it would suggest them as like things to beef up to, to get to the first page. The way that I sold it and I found that really resonated was like a curiosity headline of like, this is how the tool works. It's analyzed over a billion keywords in its lifetime across, you know, thousands and thousands of websites. And it will suggest the keywords that you should be ranking for, but aren't. And it really didn't go into how it did it, you know, and, and once you got in the tool, you could kind of figure out what it was doing. But it was really like a curiosity play of like, this is the job it does. And these are the testimonials and, it, and pe- these people are saying it works. And of course, there was a bunch of, you know, if, when you first arrived at the site, people would have skepticism, right? Does this thing actually work? Is it worth the money? Is it going to waste my time? All that. But that curiosity play was enough to to get a lot of a lot of signups, really high trial to paid conversion, right? And I can imagine with you, this headline, while you, you know, like you said, if someone came here totally cold and they don't really know what this is or they don't have the context, then I'm not sure it's enough to draw them in. But it sure is, is as you said, if you're into forecasting and you really don't like the spreadsheet, <laughs> that the headline captures it and that's enough. And so I think that that is an interesting approach in this early stage. Yeah. And, and I felt a little bit more justified when uh, Heaton Shaw, who's a tiny seed mentor, came and shared with the group and he's now running usefyi.com or FYI. And that homepage is 
almost, I mean, that was my inspiration for this was if he can get away with it and it's literally just an H1 and then a button. And I don't know how that's going for him, what his plans are. I'm not speaking to that, but I saw it and I said, okay, here's a guy who knows a thing or two about uh, heat maps and homepages and actions. And the one thing that resonated with me or I took away from that was what's the thing you want them to do when they're here? And with his, apparently it's signing with Google. With mine, it's I want you to create an account. And it was just a great point of, man, if you know the next action you want them to take, maybe it's okay to just start by focusing on that. So, yeah. Right. And that's one reason before you launch an app, if you put up a landing page and drive traffic to it or or whatever, it's very simple, that landing page. Typically, it's a headline, a short description and an email capture form, right? That's the standard format of it. And you, you can get those... To, to convert really high, 10, 20, 30% of, of visitors if they're targeted and, you're, and you have good headline and kind of good curiosity created out of that, you land a lot of folks. And so I think there is something to that simplicity. My guess is with Heaton's, uh, he's not doing something if it's not working. So, you know, I'm guessing that's a pretty, pretty decent approach. So, well, sir, thank you so much for coming back on Startups for the Rest of Us. As I said at the top of the show, you are at Matt Wensing on Twitter. And of course, usesummit.com if folks want to check out what you've been up to and potentially forecast their SaaS with V2. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Absolutely, man. Thanks. Thanks again to Matt for coming back on the show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would check the Startups Pod Twitter feed and you can at reply because Matt and I will both have been mentioned in the tweet that came out this morning or retweet or whatever. Just let us know, if, you know, any piece of that conversation that you enjoyed or got value out of and you feel like you'll take with you as you go ahead in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again next Tuesday morning.